the Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Slow Horses, the British spy series based on the books by Mick Herron, is starting its season three on TV this week. John Powers has our review. But first, what we need to get to a just peace between Israel and Palestine. D.D. Guttenplan will comment in a minute. The ceasefire in Gaza has been extended, which means more Israeli hostages will be returned in exchange for the release of more Palestinian prisoners, and more convoys of aid trucks will provide food, fuel, and medicine to the residents of Gaza. More than a million of them have been driven from their homes by the Israeli military. What will it take to move from the current ceasefire to a real solution to this conflict? For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. His books include American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, also The Nation, A Biography, and The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. We reached him today at the magazine's offices in Manhattan. Don, welcome back. Thanks, John. Always good to be with you. You write in The Nation that the only plausible peaceful solution to this conflict has long been obvious. What is it? Well, quoting Edward Said, as I always do when I'm thinking about Israel and Palestine, because no one has thought about it as clearly or as deeply as he, uh, this is a piece of land that two peoples think they both have a perfect right to. And the only just solution when two peoples believe they have a perfect right to something if you concede that neither of them are delusional. And I, I understand that there are those who don't concede that, but I think Edward did, did concede it, and I certainly concede it, is to share the land. Now, you know, that leads on to a whole series of very important questions. One state, two states, shared sovereignty. And I'm not dismissing or diminishing the importance of those questions. But the obvious part is that they're going to have to share the land, which means they're going to have to live with each other, which means they're going to have to stop murdering each other. Let us note that the official announced position of the Biden administration, stated by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on November 8th, was that, quote, the Palestinian people's voices and aspirations must be at the center of post-crisis governance in Gaza, and that, quote, Palestinian-led governance in Gaza unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority are U.S. requirements, uh, Palestinians living side by side with Israelis in states of their own with equal measures of security, freedom, opportunity, and dignity, close quote, the official American policy that's pretty close to what we want, isn't it? Well, it's what some of us want. I mean, you know, I would say some of your listeners, some of our readers want a two-state solution. Some of them would prefer a single secular democratic state. Uh, I think that's a, a debate worth having at some point, but I don't think this is the point. I will say this, that yes, the position of the U.S. government has been in favor of two states since Camp David. Um and it remains the position. It is also true that to adapt Abba Eben's formula about the Palestinians, the United States government has missed many opportunities <laughs> uh, 
to actually do something about moving towards a two-state solution as opposed to offering lip service. I mean, for example, many governments around the world recognize the state of Palestine as a government. If the United States had done that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even five years ago, that would have strengthened the hand of the Palestinian Authority for all its faults and its abiding virtue for those of us who believe in you know, sharing the land is that it accepts the obligation to share the land, whereas Hamas does not. Um, so, you know, the United States government had it within its power. It has it within its power tomorrow to say we will recognize if the Palestinians can form a unity government, we will recognize it as the authority over whatever territory they arrive at in negotiations with the state of Israel. They haven't done that, but they could. Well, the immediate task is to make the current ceasefire permanent. The two forces doing the most to achieve that are, first of all, the movement in Israel to bring home the hostages. There was a demonstration in Tel Aviv last Saturday night with 100,000 people, I read. And then Joe Biden, who's been pushing Netanyahu hard on the ceasefire and hostage exchange. But I think Biden needs us to overcome the pressure from APAC and its many allies in Congress, who, of course, call for a renewal of Israel's war in Gaza. So the strength of the peace camp in the United States is extremely important. And as you have noted, the two-state solution has always been defeated. A one-state solution has never been considered. But we need to work again for some resolution along these lines. And that means we need to assemble the broadest, most effective coalition possible. That is the theme of your editorial in The Nation. You point out that for starters, we all need to engage in what you call the delicate, challenging task of learning to speak a shared language. And just to show how delicate and difficult this is, what about the term genocide? What about the term genocide? I think Brandishing the term genocide as your first resort to describing what happened, what's happening in Gaza is a terrible disservice to actual victims of genocide. However, I have to say my own thinking, and I've thought that for some time, my own thinking, though, was moved by a piece that Omar Bartov wrote for The New York Times. Omar Bartov is one of the greatest living historians of genocide, and he is deeply concerned to stop Israel before it commits genocide. So his point is, if you want to stop a prospective genocide, don't talk as if it's already happened. Talk about the urgency of doing something now to stop it. And I, I think that that's incredibly clear. It gives us a moral mandate for the urgency of both protesting and using the leverage that the U.S. government has over the Israeli government, which I think Biden has been criminally slow to use. A term that we hear a lot on college campuses today. What about settler colonialism? Well, again, settler colonialism is one of those terms that makes the people who deploy it feel better, feel superior. It is undeniable that the Israeli government, particularly when it's a right-wing government, but also under labor, has facilitated settlements in the occupied territories, which are violations of international law. So in that sense, 
certainly Israel can be described as acting like a settler colonial government. The problem with using that as a description of what's happened and, and what's happening is that it negates the history of Israel, Zionism as a movement, and the people who live in Israel on two fronts. One is that the yearning of the Jewish people to return to Zion, even if it's based on myth, which most religion, most religious beliefs are, even if it's based on myth, which most religious beliefs are, is nonetheless a belief that's been held for millennia. So you're not going to you're not going to argue people out of it just because you think it doesn't make any sense. And the second point is that by describing Israel as settler colonialist, you're encouraging the fantasy that it is in some sense like the French in Algeria, which is to say, if you make life difficult enough for the Israelis, they'll just leave. And first of all, they have most of them have nowhere else to go, so they're not going to leave. That is their country, just as Palestine is the country of the Palestinians, whether or not they have a state. And secondly, it erases the fact that at least half of current Israelis are Mizrahi Jews, i.e. Jews who come from the Arab world, which by most <laughs> calculus of privilege means they don't count as white. So, you know, you're, you're negating those people's existence by calling it simply a settler colonialist society as if they were all like the English people who came to Australia or Canada, or for that matter, the United States. And, you know, that's the third problem with it, which is, sure, let's all oppose settler colonialism. But, you know, to quote Booker T. Washington, put your bucket down where you are. So if you want to oppose settler colonialism, start a movement in America to return land to Native Americans. And when you've done that, then you have some credibility about returning other people's land that was stolen from them. The Netanyahu government has promised to renew hostilities. And their argument is uh, Hamas is playing an extremely cynical game. They kidnap women and children because they know Israelis value Jewish life above all else and will stop the war briefly to get them back. And playing Hamas's game only gives them time to strengthen their terrorist movement. What do you say to all of that? Well, there are two things that are wrong with that. One is, you know, you talked about Israeli hostages and Hamas prisoners, but of course, a lot of the Hamas prisoners are are children and women. So, you know, why not talk about hostages and hostages? The Israeli state takes hostages too. The second point, though, and I think the more salient one, is that Netanyahu's pledge to eliminate Hamas is a fantasy. You know, that as we point out in this editorial, Israel claims to have eliminated something like 2,000 Hamas fighters, and that was at a cost of tens of thousands of civilians. So if there are 30,000 Hamas fighters, as they're supposed to be, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties if Israel pursues the war in the same way that it pursued it before the, the pause. And all that that will do is generate generations more recruits for whatever organization springs up to replace Hamas, even if Israel could succeed in eliminating it, which it can't. So it's not just a fantasy, it's a murderous, self-destructive fantasy, and it needs to be abandoned and ended. And then what about the phrase, from the river to the sea? Well, you know, I don't mean to 
evade the question, John, but I think really people who want to argue about language when we need to be arguing about, when we need to be working hard to stop the slaughter are wasting time that is too valuable to waste. I mean, you know, I remember going to stop the war demonstrations for the Iraq war in London 20 years ago and being put off by signs saying from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free because it struck me then as a non-Zionist, but someone with a lot of Zionists in my family, that it was, uh, you know, an argument for the elimination of the state of Israel, which again, you can make arguments for and against, but, you know, I think any Jew who cares at all about the state of Israel will hear that as an, as an argument for eliminating one ethno-state among all the ethno-states in the world. So if, if what you're interested in, this does come closer to the argument I make in the nation, which is mostly not about language. It's about a choice we have. And the choice is whether we want to achieve change or catharsis. Shouting about genocide, shouting slogans that alienate people who you need to have in your coalition in order to exert maximum pressure on the American and Israeli governments may make you feel better. But it is politically not as effective as using language that everybody can march behind, that everybody can assemble under, that we can all support and it doesn't need to have to be explained to people because those explanations, sometimes they work and sometimes they just feel like gaslighting to the people who are being told, oh, you're wrong. You shouldn't take offense at this. Well, you can try and convince people they shouldn't be put off, but maybe better to just work with them on the immediate objective of extending this pause to a real ceasefire. And I have to say here, I want to give a shout out to Bernie Sanders, who, as always, uh, has shown the path to effective moral and political leadership. You know, a lot of people on the left were trolling Bernie, particularly on social media, for his reluctance to advocate for a ceasefire. And the nation advocated for a ceasefire weeks and weeks ago. You know, that was that was our line. It remains our position. But if you look at what Bernie's been doing lately, He's been arguing for extending this pause, turning it into a ceasefire and moving to negotiations, which may well involve putting considerable pressure, not just on the government of Israel, but also on Hamas and also on the Palestinian Authority, but using the leverage that the U.S. has and using the fact that although Israel has said for decades they won't negotiate with terrorists, they always negotiate with terrorists. They're negotiating now with Hamas. These are fruitful negotiations. If they're fruitful enough to bring home the hostages, why not make them fruitful enough to stop this war? D.D. Guttenplan, his editorial, To Stop the Slaughter in Gaza, We Need the Broadest Coalition Possible. It was published at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Now it's time to take a step back from Israel's war in Gaza and talk about one of my favorite writers of books about spies, Mick Herron, author of the Slow Horses series of books and also TV shows. It's returned to TV Wednesday, November 29th with season three on Apple TV+. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, 
where he's heard by something like 5 million listeners on the radio and another 3.5 million on the podcast. Wow. <laughs> he's worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then Vogue. His work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about the films Barbie and Oppie. John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, you're the first person I know who recommended Mick Heron's books to me. At the beginning, the very first one that was titled Slow Horses, this was well before he became an international literary sensation with total sales of more than 3 million copies. There are now a total of eight books in the Slow Horses series, plus one new one a few months ago that's a prequel. For those who know nothing about all of this, what is the premise here? Who are the Slow Horses? They are members of MI5 who have fallen out of favor for one reason or another with the people in power. They've either made a mistake in the field, they've had a drug problem, they're overly violent, they are prying or unlikable, and they get shipped over to a place called Slough House where they are all working on almost nonsense jobs. And the reason why they simply haven't been fired is that in the spy world, it raises too many questions of, of ministerial control and interest to go through all of that. So what they do is they simply farm them out to this place in the East End of London, where they are overseen by, by a brilliant spy named Jackson Lamb, played on this TV series by Gary Oldman, who is at once brilliant and staggeringly cruel and rude to all of them <laughs> as he tells them how stupid he, they are, farts in their faces, is constantly drunk, looks lousy, and in fact pushes them around. And yet, and yet, even though these are slow horses, then they all dream of getting back to MI5 and actually having real careers, which will not happen. And yet, even though they're considered to be the losers, the slow horses in the field, as it happens in every case in the book, the biggest thing that's happening somehow stumbles into their lap, or they're given it because someone in power wants that to be done handled badly. So they are given the thing, and then they do it, and then they wind up handling it well. One more thing about Jackson Lamb. He's fiercely defensive about his employees, even though he's terribly abusive of them. Yes. He tells his superiors, they may be screw-ups, but they're my screw-ups. Yes. And in, in fact, in, in this re relationship, he, he's slightly different to say the, some of the classics by people, because you have the sense that Jackson Lamb doesn't actually believe at this point in any of the things that spies do. But the one thing he does have is loyalty to the people who are connected to him. You know, and, and, you know, I think that's kind of the burnt out end of a, of a longtime spy who no longer believes in the ideology, but does believe you protect your own. Critics say that Mick Heron is the John Le Carre of our generation. What do you say about that? Well, I think I probably have said it, so I, 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 I can only think it's a brilliant pursuit. And, and this gives me a chance to quote the old chestnut from the 18th Brumaire by Marx, where he comments that history repeats itself. The first time is tragedy, the second is farce. And if you know the John le Carré books, you know that when he was reinventing the spy novel starting in the 60s, they nearly always ended with tragic endings. You know, that people were destroyed unfairly because spying does that. People's lives are ruined or, or and they feel meaningless and are often betrayed and killed. 
McCarran has similar kinds of things happen, but whereas it's played for tragedy in Le Carre, by now Heron's sense of the spy world is that, it, especially in Britain, is it's kind of comical. And that, in fact, it's now run by clowns. It's no longer the serious business that it was, but it's a place of bureaucratic infight and silliness. So it is now farce rather than tragedy. It's not quite that way. The stories are serious and all the rest. But the, but that is the difference between Le Carre and McCarran. And what strikes me most about the difference is that Le Carre, of course, started out in the depths of the Cold War, and his books had this critical element to them where he rejected the black and white of good and evil, the evil empire and the defenders of freedom. His world of spies was the gray zone where our spies and their spies sometimes had more in common with each other than with their own overlords who would betray them or mislead them. All that is missing from the slow horses because of course it's long after the Cold War and tasks the slow horses are given, especially in season three, which begins this week, are much more melodramatic than what happened to uh, George yes. Smiley. They're both more melodramatic and they are much more Britain-centered. So, you know, so that nearly all of the great Lacare novels, even the ones that come later, are set internationally and actually have to do with important international issues. Often what is happening in The Slow Horses is they are dealing with something where some political person, and there's a, there's a Boris Johnson figure who figures large, he's played by Samuel West in the, in the series, and he and lots of other people want to privatize the Secret Service. And so what often plots are set in motion by right-wing schemers or by people who want to privatize. And so that's a very different kind of thing, so that the, the criminals are no longer sinister Russians, or and there's no ideological thing, except the ideological thing is that the people within MI5 want to protect themselves from being taken over by private corporations, which the, the Tory figure, played by you know, Peter Judd, and that's the Boris Johnson figure, his dream is to more or less outsource all of spying. And at that level, all of the slow horses, including the people who are enemies within slow horses who work for MIF, the one thing they all want is to stop that. Obviously, Mick Heron grew up reading John Le Carre, knows all about this. And it seems like his Jackson Lamb is kind of the opposite of Le Carre's protagonist, George Smiley. Jackson Lamb is, as you've said, flamboyantly offensive and outrageous, and that's certainly not what George Smiley was. Smiley was all discretion, and, and everyone kind of worshipped him because he never gave anything away. You never knew what he felt about anything, even when he was triumphantly defeating Carla, <laughs> the great Soviet spy. You could never tell whether he was really satisfied, whether he was dissatisfied, whether he thought it was worth it, whether any of that. I mean, he really plays cards close to the chest. In contrast, Jackson Lamb says what is in his mind at every particular moment. It's often extreme, extremely funny. If you watch <laughs> the series, you, you realize, once again, what a fantastic actor Gary Oldman is. You know, this isn't a role that, you know, that is a challenging role. It, it, it is kind of a comic turn as a brilliant slob. And yet Oldman, every single scene finds some new way of doing that so that you're just stunned at how effortlessly good he is. In fact, I was discussing with, with some friends, how was it that he wasn't a huge movie star for the last 30 years in everything? Because he's just a great actor. 
Let us note that a decade ago, Gary Oldman was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal of George Smiley in the adaptation for TV of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Of course, Alec Guinness was our George Smiley. It's an impossible act to follow, and yet Gary Oldman did it. You know, I think that he's better, or, and or he's certainly more fun as Jackson Lamb. I mean, partly because Lamb is a more fun character, but also there's, I think there's a certain largeness of spirit in Oldman that it is not best served being bottled up. I think there's just a, a life coming from, and a great humor. And and he's really, really funny in the TV series. In the TV series, if you've, if you've read the books, you realize that Jackson Lamb gets a bigger role in the TV series than he does in the books. He's put in the stories earlier, he's more present. And that makes perfect sense because He's the star and is fun, and no one in their right mind wouldn't give him less time if you're trying to make people watch a TV series. I want to talk about the new TV series in just a minute, but first I want to talk about the new book by Mick Heron. came out in September, The Secret Hours. It's billed as a standalone novel. If you have not read the Slow Horses series, The Secret Hours is probably not the place to begin with McCarran. But for those who have read The Slow Horses, the pleasures here are big and the surprises at the end are bigger. Yeah, they, they are. I mean, be, because basically it is a backstory of some of the characters in Slow Horses. They're never identified by name in the, in the course of the book, but you learn things about them and that some of the things you learn I think hit a new emotional register for the Mick Heron series that you you actually feel some things in a way that you don't in the sometimes he's the comedy is is so powerful that you don't feel things as deeply as as you know, he doesn't want you to feel things as deeply as Le Carre wanted to, but somehow in this new one there are characters who appear and you learn something about them and their stories interesting and touching. And you understand, I think, partly how you get to the cynicism of slow horses by looking at some of the things that happen to the characters along the way. So what can you tell us about the new season three of Slow Horses on Apple TV? Yes, well, well, the short version is that one of the slow horses gets kidnapped and grabbed. And no one is quite sure why at first. And then the slow horses get involved in trying to save her. And this leaves them, leads them into all sorts of complicated things and that touch on all of the big McCarran themes, you know, the bureaucratic infighting, Jackson Lamb's protectiveness toward, toward, his, toward his people, the way that politicians want private security forces to take over. And, and so more or less all of the characters are there. And what's interesting is that if you watch the series, Kristen Stott Thomas plays the, plays the second in charge at MI5, and she's involved in a struggle with, with her boss, played by Sophie Okonedo, who you might know from Hotel Rwanda, who's a terrific actress and whose style is low-key and therefore plays well off the slightly steamier side of Kristen Scott Thomas. And so you so you have you have these different struggles along the way. You have people you actually have people getting killed. You have more gunfights than usual. But you but by the third season, and I think it was also true of the book, you're now slightly more invested in characters, and so that you don't want them to get killed. You know, and yet McCarran does kill people off. I was you know I mean I'm sure you probably maybe you saw the New York Times article with him, 
where he was commenting, you actually have to kill some of the characters. Otherwise, there's no there's no suspense. You know, one of the things that's always unbearable about most things is, is when they don't kill off people you like, then it, it's, it, it's a different series. It just lacks something, even if it's a farcical series. You want to think that in any given scene, somebody you care about or interested in might be gone, because that does give it some oomph. John Powers, final thoughts. One of the things I love about the series is the way that in each book, Mick Heron introduces you to what Slough House is by approaching Slough House and describing it in a new way. And in each book, he manages to find a brilliant, funny, and perceptive way of telling you what it is without ever repeating anything. I compared it to like, like the, the Hokusai prince of Mount Fuji, where you're all <laughs> seeing the same thing. And he approaches it in a different way and, 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 and just in two or divorce terms when you're reading it. Because the first time he does it, you think that's a brilliant description. And then the second book, it's also brilliant, but it's completely different. And then the third book, and you realize that he is an incredibly witty and inventive writer. And almost every sentence sings. There's a good joke on almost every page. He's a really wonderful, popular writer. Slow Horses Season 3 premiered on Apple TV Plus on November 29th. Mick Heron's latest book, The Secret Hours, kind of a backstory to the Slow Horses series, was published in September. John Powers, thank you for being the first to recommend Mick Heron to me, and thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.